0: Want to turn with me? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, looking at verses 1 through 14. And if you've been kind of tracking where we are going through the Gospel of Matthew, this is a third in the series of three parables that Jesus is telling. And each of those parables are intended to paint a picture for us about what true discipleship is, what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ. And in the larger section, it's in a larger section that's getting at this, this uh, explosive confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's in the middle of a, a battle, and it's a battle that's going to culminate in an execution in about four days. So it's a challenging passage, and we're in the final parable, and this week was a little more uh, got away from me, and I got to my sermon preparation a little later than I like to do, and when I sat down and read the parable several times, I thought, right, this is This is great. I really would have loved an easier story. (laughs) I went and probably the best academic book on the parables is Kyle Snodgrass's book, Stories of Intent. Sorry, maybe he can help get me going in the right direction. And his opening line is, this is without a doubt, one of the hardest parables in the entire Bible to unpack. Excellent. Okay, so now as we unpack it, one of the things that will be helpful is just to get some of the uh, cultural background because when we read it, just on the surface, the first time you read it and you think, this makes no sense. I mean, last week's parable was a, was a little awkward, but it had some plausibility to it. You have these tenants that are really greedy, and so they want to kill the, the owner's son to kind of take the profits for themselves. But in this one, you have a king who's going to kill the, kill me- or you have the tenants, that, they kill the messengers who are inviting them to a party. And then you have a king who's going to destroy a whole city because they don't come to his son's wedding. And then you have a guy who gets thrown out into eternal darkness because he's not wearing the right outfit at the wedding. You think, all right, so what's, what's happening here? And maybe some cultural things. Um, Steve Cole was telling me about a group from the Jesus Film who had recently went to Clarkston, Georgia, which I grew up not too far from Clarkston, Georgia. It's just outside of uh, Stone Mountain. And he said it's, it's become one of the most diverse square miles in the entire country with over 50 different nationalities represented just at the high school, and for scale, we have a very diverse elementary school here, and we had Multicultural Day this past week, and we had 27 different nationalities represented in the school, but 50. And I just couldn't imagine, like, so that's right in the middle of Georgia Bulldog country, and these last couple years, like, I could not imagine if you had just come to America from Somalia, and you come like in a, a typical Saturday in the fall, and you're looking around, and you have grown men wearing bright red clothes with pictures of dogs on them, and they're barking to one another in public. Like they say things like, Go dogs, and like, go dogs, sick woo woo. And you're like, What what world am I like? What's wrong with these people that like they're barking at each other? Is this and so it would be Disorienting and so there's certain things about this parable as we get into that kind of disorient us, but make sense to them And so like this is a story about a king's son who's gonna inherit the kingdom and he's heir to the throne and the act of the invitees their response is not just rude it's insurrection It's treason. It's an act of rebellion. So what do kings do when their subjects rebel? And then the the guy's kind of fashion faux pas. It's not just a fashion faux pas. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of treason. So let's get into the story and see what we can pull out of it. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son." And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So let's kind of walk through it, understanding a little more of the context. This is a king, it's a royal wedding, these are acts of rebellion and treason. So first, let's look at the preparation of the feast. So we can pull up that first slide, They'll just kind of there's two different stories, there's two stories put together, and in kind of both times there's a preparation, there's kind of an invitation, there's a response by the people and the, and the king, so we'll just kind of put the story together, see what comes out of it. Notice it's a king in verse 2, and he's giving a wedding feast for his son. Now, what we need to do is we have the advantage on this side of Pentecost, Holy Spirit, Bible, 2,000 years of church history, of understanding a little more what the images are meant to symbolize. So, the son, that's Christ, he's the groom, and his church, that's the bride. And there's a wedding ceremony that's inaugurated by this this new covenant. So new covenant is, it's a marriage covenant, where covenant, the covenants have always been, I will be your God, you will be my people. Now this is how, that we are his people, he is our God. And notice, he's preparing a feast. That's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is a feast. It's a wedding feast, you think about uh, verses like Psalm 1611, that you have made known to us the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are eternal pleasures. That's the promise of the kingdom. It is the, the ultimate in joy and celebration, both in quality and both in quantity. So that's what's being offered. Come and enter into the celebration so I don't know what your conception of the Christian life is and what this is all about. But if, if there's not an element of this is a feast, this is entering into a life of joy and celebration. And then notice in verse 4, he's made all of the preparations. What's fascinating in this is the king is the only one really who acts. He's done all of the labor and the work. Notice verse 4. Look, I have prepared... My dinner, my oxen, my fat calves, they've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. So all the preparations for you to come in and you to experience life. Forgiveness of sins has been prepared. Favor with God has been prepared. Peace of mind is prepared and offered. Peace with God is prepared. All of the great promises of the gospel. He's made, he's done something so you can experience and have access to them. Pull up the next slide just with that image of the different promises. Might be hard to see if you're in the back. But these are all the different promises, the things he's, he's done. He's, he's chosen a people. He's prepared so they can experience forgiveness and then be accepted and then adopted into a family and made alive and then been delivered from the penalty of sin and are being delivered from his power. And he's giving them a hope and a destination, something they're uh, coming to. He says all of this, it has been prepared. I have done something so you can experience this. And you need it all. Like you get all of this when you come to the feast. You don't pick one or two. You get all of this. Kind of reminds me of when Cynthia and I were doing marriage counseling. And one of our marriage counselors was talking about how one of the most important things that a healthy marriage is—we got to learn each other and learn what language, like love language, we speak. And so I'd never thought about love as a a language. And so he said, "All right, so tell me about yourself. Like, um, you know, you're thinking about marriage. Um, Do you like physical touch? Uh, Yes, please. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you like gifts? Uh, Yeah. Like that. Do you like words of affirmation? Yeah, yeah. I'll take that." do we got to choose between these, or can we just, like, <laughs> take them all? Like, we talk about the promises of God. You don't choose between these. This is the, the overflowing nature of the feast that's ours, and we're being invited to and into. And so he says, it's all been prepared. Come. And then now, what do they do? Notice the invitations get sent out to the celebration. He sends his servants out, and he says, go tell them to Come. I mean, for all of you, like in vocational ministry, what a beautiful picture of what the minister's task is. Our job is to be a servant of the king, to tell the world about the invitation to come. Come to his banquet. So they go out and tell, but... Uh, or actually, let's, let's start and just think, what do they tell? I love verse 4. Everything is ready. It's all been prepared. Come. You know, this reminds me of Revelation 22 at the very end of the Bible where the spirit and the bride, they say, come, come. Come to the feast. The Father says, come. He's ready to welcome you. The Son says, come. I'm ready to unite with you. The Spirit says, come. I'm ready to cleanse you and renew you. Forgiveness is ready. Peace is ready. Pardon is ready. There are angels who are ready to help you. There's fellow guests who are ready to walk with you. There's mercy and goodness that's ready to follow you all of your days until you get there. The feast has been prepared. And he says, come. And then notice what they do. Look in verse 3. The first group would not come. It's interesting. They, they would not come. There our Bible study on Thursday. Dale Peacock in the back was talking about a project he worked on with the BP oil spill and was working with their lawyers and said it would be amazing how long you can debate and try and unpack in the legal terminology the difference between words like should and can and would and then notice here, they would not come. And what did they do? You notice they ignored. They said that, you know, the first group, um, it says in verse 5, they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm and another to his business. You know, why did they ignore why did they just disregard this kind of invitation? I mean, you think about the kind of concept and scale. This is our, so most people, I, probably, I wouldn't have done well in the ancient world because most people only ate meat probably two to three times a year. And you didn't, so this is not like an invitation to your third cousin's second birthday party. This is an invitation to the most significant social and political and cultural event of their lifetime. Nothing will compare in scope and scale to this party that they will ever experience. And they act like they have better things to do. There's nothing going on for the rest of your life that's going to be more important than this party. What else do you have to do? And the first they just ignored. And it's worth thinking about. This would be a question if your group kind of talks through the sermon or with uh, family uh, after the, the service. What invitation could be extended to you right now, that you would not have to even, there would be no hesitation at all to say yes. You know, for me, I think if somebody called up and said, you know, there's an opportunity for you to play golf at Augusta National, would you like, yes. Yes, I would. Do you need to check your calendar? No, I do not. Do you need to check with Cynthia? I do not. I will be there. Two days early. <laughs> like, what invitation could be extended to you where yes, absolutely. That's what this should have been to them. And yet, everything they went to do is probably a good thing. I love how Jesus puts the whole culture into a quick umbrella. Some went to their farms, those living in the country, some went to their businesses, those living in the city. And everything they're going to do can be a good thing, but it was not the one thing needful. It's not the most important thing. And then in verse 5, other people, look what they did. Others seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And it's a shocking thing, probably a shocking thing for those servants. Wait, I I was called by the king to go tell the world of this great invitation to come. Why am I being treated this way, shamefully, and killed? And then in verse 7, notice how the king responded. The king was angry. Don't mess with his servants and don't mock and disrespect his son. The king is angry and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn the city. And then what's he going to do? Now there's a second group. So this this story runs in parallel. So now he sends another invitation out to a second group in verse 9. And he says, go out. Go out into the, I love the old King James, the highways and the byways. You go out into the world, the main roads, and you invite whoever you can find. Open up the door. The feast is prepared. You come. And what we'll see is Christ is going to have a church, He's going to have a bride. He's going to have a people who enter into his celebration. He's going to have a people. If the first people who uh, the invitations offer to reject it, he will move on. And he will bring people into his community. You know, one of the fascinating things is throughout the last 2,000 years of church history to look and you can trace the movement of kind of the, the epicenter of the heart of Christianity throughout the world. And so for those of you in missions organizations, you know, lots of maybe kind of the 1040 window where um, they don't have access to the gospel is unreached. But in that entire window, that used to be, that used to be very much reached. That used to be the heart of Christ's kingdom on this earth. But then multiple factors have happened, so it no longer is that. And then the heart moved into Europe, and then the heart moved over to America. Now, the heart has moved out of here and is in places like uh, South Africa, Central America, in other places. But it's fascinating to see it move. But he will have a people. If the original people disregard and reject, he will go somewhere else. And the danger for the second one is the hypocrite. And so through all these parables up until this point, Jesus is attacking the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, but he wants everybody else who's listening not to kind of stand on the sidelines and like, yeah, you chumps, that's right. He said, wait, wait, wait. What lives in them can live in you too. So you be careful. And so he attacks the hypocrisy. Now notice how this man is discovered. Um, So the wedding hall was filled with guests in verse 10. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place, he'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So I notice first how he's discovered. He's discovered uh, by the king so it's the king who sees and it's the king who can tell that he doesn't belong here. And notice this question, friend, how did you get in here? See, it's the king who can see that he's not dr- dressed right. What I find interesting, he doesn't accre- uh, correct or discipline the attendants. He doesn't critique the people at the door. And so he doesn't say, right, why would you let this guy in? Everybody can see he's not dressed right. Maybe... The only person who can really see that he's not dressed right is the king and the man. See, this is part of the symbolic tension running through this whole passage because Jesus is about to unload on the religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. And his primary critique is you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful. But on the inside, it's death and decay. And so the king has eyes to see who this man really is. And he attacks his presumption for coming in. He just makes you wonder, did he sneak in? How did he get in? You know, Jesus said, I'm the door. You only come in through me. The gate is is narrow. And then when he addresses the man, notice in verse 12, he's speechless. He's speechless. You know, this is what the law that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 is meant to do. It says, now that we know that the law speaks to all those who are under the law, which is everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, And what it does is um, it it speaks in such a way so the whole world now is held accountable or guilty and we're all speechless. We're all speechless. And then he comes and then now he's speechless. I find it interesting, a lot of us, I think, or many people think unduly, think um, they're going to have a lot more, what's the word I'm looking for? Hutzpah is what's coming to mind, but I don't know if that's... They're going to have a lot more... Uh, I don't know, sass is what's coming to mind. Uh, when they stand before God's sauce. It Sounds like grandmothers in the South would say, don't give me that sauce. They like, think they're going to stand before God and be like, All right, when I stand before God, I'm going to be like, hey, why did you let this? Why did this? What was this? Probably not. When you stand before Him, you'll probably fall on your face either in ad, abject adoration... Or abject terror, but you probably won't do a whole lot of talking. And notice he is speechless. And then the sentence first, he's shackled hand and feet. Those represent life and work. Refuse to follow him and walk with him with the feet, refuse to work with him. Hands, he's taken out and he's cast into the outer darkness. And he's saying, All right, why is that so offensive? Why would this be the response? And in many ways, the scale of the offense. Is correlated to the scale of the offer and what has been invited, what you've been invited to, and then what you've rejected. So, for example, there's a different, there's a scale of offense. Like if your neighbor invites you to their third cousin's second birthday party and you can't make it, that kind of has one level of offense. But like if you're Father invites you to his sixty-fifth birthday party and you don't go. That has another level. Um, If your wife invites you to your fortieth wedding anniversary party and you don't go, (laughs) right? We're we're getting into different levels of offensiveness. And this is a scale that we almost can't even conceive of. And then what we can see in hindsight, what's so bad is because what that man experiences, the very thing he's rejecting. What he got is what he's rejected um, to get him into the celebration to begin with. Because at the end of the week, Jesus is going to experience the fullness of those things. He's going to experience not just his hands and feet bound. He's going to experience them bound to a cross. And what he's going to experience is not just being taken away from the party, but being utterly and totally cast out and entering into total darkness so that we then could come and enter into the light. And then he's going to say the image of you're not, you're not dressed right. Because the clothing in the Bible always symbolizes the new life that we experience in Christ. So Paul says in Romans 13, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. The night's over. Put away the deeds of darkness, but put on the light. Galatians three twenty seven. all who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with him. Ephesians 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self so you can be created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 9, don't lie to each other since you've taken off the old self and its practices and you put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of your Creator. So let's go back actually to that picture of the gospel promises. You know what does it mean to put on the proper wedding garments? It means that we we know these things. They enter into our heart, and then it flows out in how we live. So we can see: Are we wearing Christ? Do we know? Do we know that you have been chosen, and your life is not an accident, and you are not the result of the random colliding of molecules? You did not come from nothing and you're not going to nothing. Your life has meaning and it has purpose. You've been chosen. And then preparations have been made so you can be forgiven and you don't have to walk in guilt and you can be accepted in his sight so you don't have to live in shame and you can you don't have to be driven by the paralyzing insecurities that drive so many people where you need to pose and posture and preen and prove yourself to the world. It's unnecessary now. And then you know that you can be adopted into a family and you're not alone and you can be made alive. So you're not living a numb, distracted, dead life. And you can be delivered from the things that bind you so you can experience true freedom. And then you, can, you are being delivered and made new and getting better and growing. And then there's a hope that's put in front of you. And so you know that your best days are always ahead of you. He says, what it means to put on Christ is you live out the light of that reality, that all of those things are ours in him, and we live it. So how can a wedding like this end in weeping because of the rejection of the people? Don't fall prey to what they, don't fail where they failed. They believe that their tattered rags of their own efforts and self-righteousness were better clothes than what he offered, and they're not. They believed that their agenda for their life and time was better than the agenda he offered, and they were not. They believed that the feast they had at home was better than the feast that was offered at the king's house, and it is not. And so part of the symbolism every week is we take communion, and part of the symbolism of communion is a weekly reminder and foretaste. A feast is coming. Here's a little nibble on the appetizers that are coming at the end of the age. And this is a promise of what's coming. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this bread represents my body, broken for you. At every wedding feast, there's, there's bread and there's, there's a feast. And he's the lamb and this is the bread and it's broken. So we can live off him and be sustained by him. So take in remembrance of him. And then he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This is, this is the price of, of, of entrance. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. So he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the price of, of entrance into my celebration. So I will drink the bitter cup of God's wrath so you can bring the celebratory cup of God's joy. Take in remembrance of me. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. And we thank you for the challenging word that we see in this parable. But we also thank you for the beautiful picture that it paints of uh, what you did to prepare a feast for us. And I pray for everyone here in this room that we would not disregard that invitation, that we would come, that we would know the the feast has been made ready, and that we would come. And I pray for everyone here in this room that they would uh, enter into your feast, and they would experience it, and then live it out. Pray that we would live out the joy of forgiveness, that we would live out the joy of true freedom. That we would live out the joy of not having to hide or be ashamed and that we would live out the joy of having a strong and mighty hope that can get us through any season and through any situation. So all this we ask in Christ's holy name.